0: Hello and welcome to the MIT Press podcast. I'm your host Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Christoph Koch, the author of Consciousness: Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist. Christoph Koch is professor of biology and of engineering at the California Institute of Technology and chief scientific officer of the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle. He's the author of The Quest for Consciousness and other books. Christoph Koch, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today.
1: My pleasure, Chris.
0: You know, this book is a study about consciousness, but it's also part of your life story. And one of the main parts of it is your relationship with the late Nobel Prize winner Francis Crick. Could you talk a little bit about him and what he meant to your life?
1: Well, so at the time when I met him, he was roughly 60 and he had just, quote, retired. And he made this move. He made a physical move and an uh, intellectual move. He physically moved. He retired from the MRC in England we had done all of his groundbreaking work, in, including discovering the structure of the helix of uh, DNA, and for which he got together with Jim Watson's Nobel Prize. So he moved from uh, London in the Old World to La Jolla, just south of the Mexican border, uh, north of the Mexican border in, um, uh, to the Salk Institute. At the same time, he shifted his intellectual interest from molecular biology, which he helped to formulate, to neuroscience, to neurobiology and so that's when I met him and from very early on he had an interest, a deep abiding interest in consciousness and he'd always argued that the entire community of neuroscience neglected the fact that the brain actually produces consciousness. The brain is not only a physical device you can probe it with electrodes and with scanners and with dyes and things like that but it actually generates consciousness day in day out and if we didn't, uh, if we neglected that, we would neglect sort of the central fact of our existence. And so, from very early on, he had this interest in um, in consciousness. He was, a, to me, he was sort of like a mentor and a father figure. I developed a very close relationship with him for over seventeen years. We published roughly twenty books, uh, twenty papers, and and chapters in in um, in books together. He was a very intense man, but he loved sort of sparing. He loved. His way of, of generating ideas was to, to read enormous amount of material and then to discuss it and to constantly generate new ideas, many of which were crazy, many of which were duds, but some were, were true gems.
0: You know, this question about how the materiality of the brain can produce consciousness is starting to get much more attention from the scientific community. But as you point out in the book, the philosophical community has been spending some time thinking about this for quite a while. And I think in the philosophy community, this is what's referred to as the hard problem. Am I right?
1: Yeah, so that's conventional. That's uh, how it's often referred to. I mean, the the mind-body problem is as ancient as Western thought, right? It started with Aristotle, who sort of first systematically thought about it. But for the past 2000 years, it was only the domain of armchair philosophizing, right? You could speculate about it. But over the last 100 years, particularly with the development of of clinical sciences and over the last 30 to 40 years, The development of neuroscience and also the development of magnetic scanner, which allows us to peer inside the human brain as it's working has really produced a shift that, that we can now not just speculate, but we can actually begin to test. We can move from, from pure speculation to scientific, to scientific hypothesis building and testing. So it's really changed uh, dramatically over the last 30 years.
0: Was this a question of consciousness something that you were always striving to study for in your scientific career? Or was there something that happened in your life that made you think, okay, I want to study consciousness? And well, before the event, you were moderately interested in it, and then after the event, you became very interested in it.
1: Well, I, had a, I have a minor in, um, I got my degree, in, in my PhD in physics in Germany, but I also had a minor in philosophy. I was always interested in philosophy. But what really prompted me was an event long time ago. I was teaching in Woods Hole on, on, in Massachusetts uh, in the summer, many years ago, and I had the, developed this toothache, and then you know you you've taken aspirin, the, the the tooth pounds, you know, and you're you're lying in bed and you're trying to distract yourself, and you think about it, why does it hurt? So the, you know there's a medical explanation. It hurts because you know the the, the tooth, the nerve in the tooth gets stimulated, and it. And, you know, the, the, the nerve goes, it's part of the t- trigeminous nerve that ultimately ends up in the, in the spinal cord that, that relays its information to the brain proper. So ultimately, what happens if I have a toothache, some nerve cells discharge electricity. They, they generate these electrical activity. Ultimately means some ions are shlo- sloshing around. Some sodium, potassium, calcium ions are sloshing around in one part of my brain. And somehow, almost miraculously. I mean, it, it feels a little bit like you find this brass bottle and then you rub it and a genie appears. Because what happens, some there's this is transformation from electrical activity in my head, but then it transforms into these subjective feelings. And in a different part of my brain, if neurons fire, I will have experienced pleasure, or I see a red sunset, or I smile mom's apple pie, where's the difference? And fundamentally, if you think about it, it's it's this, this problem. On the one hand, it's the physics of my brain. My brain belongs to the world, just like any other object belongs to the world. And there's a the physics of it, and there are electrons that move about and ions, etc. On the other hand, it's a world of feelings, and it's very unclear how those two relate. We know those two relate because if you you know if you have a stroke or if a strong blow to the head demonstrates very dramatically that there's a link between the brain, um, you know, the brain and my mind, not. Not the liver as the mind thought, not the heart as the Greek thought, but it's the brain that generates the mind. But what is the exact nature of the relationship, and how can this physical system give rise to consciousness? And you can think, for example, of my iPhone. My iPhone, there are also electrons that are flowing. They flow onto the gates of a transistor rather than onto the synapse of a neuron, and switching goes on. There's also physical activity going on, but nobody, at least right now, believes that this phone feels conscious, that my iPhone feels like something. Yet I do, and you do, and dogs do, and lots of other animals also have, have conscious sensations. So where's the difference?
0: You know, in that answer, you mentioned dogs. And I'm a dog owner. And of course, anybody who lives with dogs knows that they have a pretty nice degree of consciousness. But I'm curious where you draw the line between animal consciousness and human consciousness. Is it in this question of self-awareness that humans are aware of themselves as themselves and can think about the future, whereas other animals, such as dogs, can't?
1: No, I don't, because self-consciousness is just one aspect of consciousness that's highly developed in us, I'll read, as you point out. Other animals like great apes have a little bit of it, or dolphins, but not too much, and dogs don't really have too much of it at all. I mean, my dog never lies there and says, hmm, I'm a dog, and, and I worry about the funny wag of my tail, it doesn't look right. Right. And, or my dog doesn't wonder what's going to happen this weekend. My dog is in the here and now. But very often you're also here in the now. If you run on a bike through busy traffic, if you're a climber, so i a rock climber, if you're on a, on a, on the dangerous climb, you're all out there. You're out on the wall. You're highly, highly aware of the, the last protection. You're aware of the detailed texture and, you know, the the granularity of the rock. You're aware of the sun. You're aware of the, of the, of the wind pulling you. But, but you're not really thinking, hmm, I should be doing my tax return right now, right? You're out there in the world. You're fully engaged with it. It's when you're making love, when you're running, when you're playing tennis, when you're watching an engaging movie. There's very little self, con- uh, there's very little self consciousness. You're out there in the world. You're engaged with the world. Self consciousness is something that we, tre- some of us treasure, particularly intellectuals. And of course, intellectuals tend to be the people who write the books about consciousness. So that's why we overemphasize it. And historically, we always, people love to believe that we are exceptional, that we are different from every, everything else in nature, and so they're always looking for things that make us exceptional. But every do, uh, every animal is exceptional in its own way. We are exceptional because we have language, no question about it. We have a big brain. We don't have the biggest brain. The biggest brain that is dolphins and, you know, and whales and, and uh, elephants. We have language. We have certain things that we do better than, than other animals. So it's a continuum of consciousness.
0: Is there such a thing as human agency? Are we responsible for the things that we do?
1: Well, we certainly have a degree of agency, right? I choose to have this interview with you. I choose to lift my hand or my right hand, right? So I certainly have agency. The question is, how much of that agency is truly autonomous? How much of this agency is just a product of my brain? My brain, as I said earlier, is a, is, it belongs to the physical world. And in general, we don't think in the physical world there is free will, Right. In general, when, a, you know, when an apple falls to the ground, we don't believe that the, uh, the apple freely chooses to drop from the branch and you know, hurtle towards the ground. right? It just follows the laws of physics. And so the question is, where does this agency enter? Subjectively, we have it, unless you, are, you, know, you, you have certain types of clinical pathology. We, we all have it. But the question is, are we really as free as we think we are? And there, the clear answer is no. We are not nearly as free as we think we are. We have habits, we have dependencies, we have constraints. It starts, you know, in simple ways that people, you know, if somebody's obese, he might want to lose weight, but is unable to. Somebody is a smoker, you know, he wants to quit smoking, but he feels compelled to smoke because of the addictive property of nicotine. And th- those things are probably true to a large or small extent to many things in life. So we are certainly less free as we believe we are.
0: Are those habits, such things as somebody trying to quit smoking and is not able to or if someone's trying to lose weight and is not able to, are those the things that in your book you refer to as zombie routines or zombie agents?
1: Uh, yeah, well, the zombie agents is typically you, uh, more used in the context of rapid sensory motor behaviors. If I run, if I play piano, if I catch a ball that somebody quickly throws at me, all those things, particularly if they're highly practiced, like soccer playing or climbing or, you know, if you're doing contact sports, boxing, if you're playing piano, if you're playing the violin, you practice something over and over and over again. If you really do it at the expert level and teachers and training manuals emphasize that you should empty your mind of every purpose and just do it. What happens there, you have this unconscious system probably down in the basal ganglia. It's not, when you learn it, you probably first need your cortex to learn violin or climbing or piano or soccer, all of that. But once you practice it again and again, then other parts of the brain, it's like hardware compilation. Another part of the brain has been trained up to do that particular task and typically does it better without you, with your cortex interfering and thinking about it. You just do it, as Nike says.
0: Is that an example of the 10,000 hours that we read about in popular press, that this is how much time it takes to become an expert in something? Is that what you're talking about?
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, once you're an expert, then you don't really need to think too much about it. But, but the, 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 the expertise only applies within a very narrow range. So people have done these experiments. You can show if you're a soccer player and you consistently play with your right foot, right? You know, people have just, uh, just like they have handedness, they have footedness. If you consistently kick the ball with your right foot, you become an expert at dribbling. You know, and you don't pay attention to it anymore because you can do it, you know, in your sleep, literally. Well, that skill does not necessarily transfer to the left leg. You have to now train up your left leg again. So this expertise is very narrow, but for that particular domain, it works very efficiently. That's why it pays to train and train and train.
0: Let's talk about dogs again. Um, If I am looking at my dog, I know that's my dog, but if I'm going out in the street and I see a dog... What is it in my brain that lets me know that, okay, that is a dog? Is there a synapse in my head, something that says, okay, whenever you see something like this, this is the concept of a dog, and that's what that, that's what that is, that's a dog?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not a synapse, it's a neuron. So we, we know that there, I mean, in fact, we, we discovered these in, in recording in patients um, during a rare situation when the neurosurgeon has to implant microelectrodes into, into the head into the brain of patients to help locate seizure foci, you can find neurons that respond very selectively to things that you're very familiar with. So it could be your dog, it could be Jennifer Aniston, it could be President uh, Obama. So anything you see again and again, your brain wires up particular neurons that respond to just that thing. So you will have many neurons that respond just to to your dog. You will also have other neurons that respond to any dog. But then in addition, you'll have neurons that selectively respond to your dog. And when you dream, and you dream of your dog, those neurons will be active. Conversely, when you can stimulate those, this is now a conjecture, people are trying to test this, when you can stimulate those neurons, somehow electrically using some fancy microelectrode or some matrix-like technology, you will suddenly think of your dog.
0: So how does quantum mechanics come into this?
1: We don't know whether quantum mechanics is relevant for the brain. In one sense, quantum mechanics governs the brain like it governs anything, everything else in the universe, right? The brain is a physical thing. It's a physical organ. And therefore, quantum mechanics as a theory that governs matter at very small scales ultimately underlies it. But right now, there's no evidence that the, the scale at which the brain operates, which is roughly milliseconds and a thousandth of an inch, roughly, you know, so it's a, it's a micrometer. At those scales, uh, quantum mechanics probably is not relevant. And you can probably, all the evidence suggests that you can treat the brain as a conventional physical system just like, any, just like a classical physicist could, uh, just like Newton could or Maxwell could. So while people always, spe- like, some people like to speculate that quantum mechanics is somehow relevant, fundamentally the belief is while quantum mechanics is still somewhat mysterious, right? people talk about the collapse of the wave function and other things, and consciousness is also sort of somewhat mysterious well, maybe both things are caused by the same mystery. Maybe Sort of there's a principle of sparsity of my- mysterium, right? So let's minimize the number of mysteries. But the experimental evidence suggests that quantum mechanics is probably not relevant to understand the brain.
0: So have we gotten any closer to answering the question about this issue of the gap between the materiality and the synapses and neurons that make up the brain, and the subjective feelings that we have about reality?
1: That's heart of con- th- So that's, uh, that's the heart of the problem of consciousness. And so here, what here one approach to take—the one that I've taken—is to adopt a fundamental information-theoretical one. To say, well, ultimately, the language in which you need to understand consciousness is. The language of mathematics, a particular type of math- a particular branch of mathematics known as information theory. It essentially describes the relationship: you have a system of interacting parts, like the brain, right? The neurons all interact, and you can describe it in terms of information theory. And the the hypothesis is, and it's a sort of psychic one, which is a, has a very ancient tradition, that any system of interacting parts that has that is complex in some to be precisely defined mathematical sense, any system that has complexity will also have some conscious sensation. We find ourselves in a universe where complexity goes hand in hand with consciousness. If you're a little bit complex, you have a little bit of consciousness. If you're very complex, like the human brain, you have a lot of consciousness and we can imagine other beings on other planets or we can imagine future computers or maybe the internet. It's a whole lot more complex than than the human brain and therefore it would have a whole lot more conscious sensations than we would. The theory is sort of not just metaphysical speculation. You can precisely calculate this, and you can also make testable predictions. So these sort of theories, for instance, explain why some parts of your brain do not really relate to consciousness. There's a little brain called the cerebellum that ironically, although the the cerebellum is a little brain, has actually 80% of the neurons. Most of your cells, roughly 80 billion in your head, are um Neurons that make up the cerebellum that's responsible for fine motor movement. For if you're a ballet dancer or for a smooth execution of running and climbing and, and sewing and doing things like that. If you lose those neurons, you'll sort of develop slurred speech. You, you won't have a steady gait anymore, but your consciousness isn't impaired at all. So there we, we see that a particular part of the brain is not very complex. It's wiring is relatively stereotypic, uh, stereotyped. It's more like a crystal and that doesn't, does not seem to generate consciousness. So the theory makes specific prediction. And ultimately, people are trying to use it to build a conscious ometer, for example, to test in patients, like you might remember Terry Schiavo, the patient eight years ago in Florida, who was in, 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 in a vegetative state for many, many years. And there are roughly ten to 20,000 of these patients. And you really like to test in each case, are they truly vegetative? That means Are they truly not conscious? Or is there some sort of flicker of consciousness that that occasionally you can assay? So you would like to build a conscious meter. These sorts of theories will allow you to do that.
0: Christoph Koch, the author of Consciousness, Confessions of a Romantic Reductionist. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today.
1: It was my pleasure, Chris.
0: For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2012, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.